0: Film fans, perhaps I should say good day. Welcome to the return of the Screen Jabber podcast. Um, we have been uh, away from for a while um, as a result of the uh, the sad loss of our fearless leader Stuart O'Connor. Um, but in in honour of his of his memory, we have decided to get the band back together and do what he would have done, which is talk films and also do what he would have done by recommending obscure Australian films to you <laughs> you will never have seen before. Um, so I, I am joined by the, the usual merry band. We, we've sort of uh, Avengers assembled together. Um, so I will throw it out to the rest of you in this Skype call. Remember Skype? Gosh, this is nostalgic. Um, <laughs> so I'll throw it out to the rest of you to uh, say a little bit about who you are. I'm Tom Beasley, You're sort of host i suppose i found out i was hosting this about 30 seconds ago um are you yeah you might remember me from the previous uh screen jabber incarnations where i would be uh dredged up to talk about the films that Stuart hadn't gone to see that week (laughs) Um, (laughs) but yes i am here i am your sort of host sort of knotting things together why don't the rest of you take it in turns introducing yourself let's start
1: with neil Hello I'm Neil Davy um, also sort of rolled out on occasion um, as a, as a as the old co-founder of screenjabber um, back many many years ago um, and was dragged on again possibly just to have two hands recommended to me on a, on a fairly regular basis. Um, so yeah no, it's an absolute pleasure to uh, to be back. I think it's a, uh, a very fitting tribute as, as you say. Yes,
0: Stuart, if you're listening somewhere, wherever you are, we are going to talk about two hands at some degree of length. So, <laughs> <laughs> But we've got two more of our merry band to introduce. So, uh, Mark, why don't you go next?
2: Uh, my name is Mark Sibby. Much like everybody else on here, I was wheeled out every so often, a bit like Hannibal Lecter on the, uh, the little trolley, um, just to talk about the latest films on offering. And also, I would write once a year for... Screen Jabber, um, alternative Christmas movies, something very different, you know, not Die Hard and things like that. So don't be surprised if I start bringing up Christmas movies at all, even though we're talking about Australian movies, because that's how my
1: mind works. That's that's Australian summer movies.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's a good point. Yes. No wonder Stuart was always annoyed with me about it. Come on. Where's the summer movies? No, it's Christmas. We need snow movies. No, we don't.
0: Absolutely nothing freaks me out more than the fact that the Australians do Christmas in summer. Like I feel like I could get my head around them being upside down and <laughs> being in different time zones, but the whole Christmas in summer thing freaks
1: me out. Yeah, call that a Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not a Christmas. <laughs> this is a, yeah. With, with apologies to any Australians listening, I feel uh, like I feel more like more we accent. should say that at
0: the start as a catch
1: <laughs> Apologies to any Australians listening. Just need a little
0: disclaimer. Uh, it's fine. Yes. So um, I, I, last, I, I, but by I... no means least we have uh, decided to do uh, what many podcasts do, and have 50% of the people taking part be called Tom. Of course. Um, So, (laughs) Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh,
3: I am Tom Memner. I have a bit of a cold, as you may be able to hear. Um, I uh, also previously was wheeled out on occasion for uh, various podcasts. Back in the podcast days, when when, uh, we would go to normally far too noisy pubs and try and record around a table. Oh, um, well, the good old days of budget. Oh yeah, yeah, God. <laughs> One recorder between six people on a table that was massive. Uh, it was always a, always a great idea. Uh, <laughs> they, although I think they might still be on the SoundCloud. I'm not sure. Anyway, before I digress too much. Um, yeah, um, I uh, wrote for Screenjammer for many years um, and uh, ended up doing a lot of the wrestling side of things and moving away from the film stuff, occasionally dipping my toes back in it. But um, yeah, it's nice. T- it's nice to be wheeled out again. So hello, everyone.
0: Hello. Yes, it's very exciting to be back doing this, back podcasting for, for Screen Jabber, and as I said at the top, what we've decided to do is to uh, pay homage to, to Stuart by talking about some uh, Australian films, and to start things off, I think we're <laughs> going to talk about an Australian film that I'm not sure Australia has a lot of fondness for, and that's, uh, that's Crocodile Dundee, <laughs> um, that's which exciting. I confess...
1: It was. It was always. It was one of the two things you could always wind Stuart up about. <laughs> so, uh, celebrating Foster's as an Australian beer, or, yes. uh, or referring to, or referring to uh, Crocodile Dundee as a documentary. So, I mean, you have so to add the weather to very, that as well. just as a third
3: star.
2: thing. But, but you know, talking about Crocodile Dundee, the thing is, what Stuart and quite a lot of people from around the other side of the world fail to realise is that Crocodile Dundee was. <laughs> A lot of people here in the uk introduction to australian movies so we always thought they were well i'm talking about we I'm, I'm going to say myself here i always thought that's how it was this is how the films were made it was all good fun and it was just you know one guy from the outback and going elsewhere and i kind of thought this is great and then you turn out it turns out that as you said there neil a lot of people don't like this film in australia and mm-hmm. i I I, kind of get it to a certain degree. I guess it's like us here in the UK who who hate four weddings and a funeral or something like that. But, you know, Crocodile Nundee was such a massive hit around the world that I, I don't know how, as much as you can hate it, I don't know how you can hate it for what it opened up the doors to do, which is, you know, Australian film industry found its footing again in the 80s, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the other thing Australians couldn't necessarily understand was for most people, it was our first experience of Paul Hogan. Yes. Who was you know, a huge, huge star in Australia, but pretty much unknown to the rest of the world. Um, I think that was a big, I think I felt that was a bit of a sticking point as well.
2: He was, am I right in thinking he was a model or something like this? I believe so, yeah. Sounds right. (laughs) I mean, mean, (laughs) here we are. We're coming from no experience whatsoever, apart from having seen Australian (laughs) films. But it's true, though. I mean, this was our introduction to Paul Hogan. All we knew was he was Crocodile Dundee, and yet we would be told on a regular basis if we brought this film up that actually he was a very famous actor and model, I think, and other things over in Australia, and this was maybe like a a downgrade for him, which seems bizarre because... It gave him a completely new lease on life, really, and it made him move to LA. And he still lives in LA to this day, based on, was it what we're we talking? Four films now, I think it is. Four films and a weird Something advert. Like yeah, I mean, the,
0: I, I suppose the caveat to us talking about the way we believe it to be received in Australia is that it it, it was the highest-grossing film of all time in Australia at the time. So they obviously liked it enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whether that's just because of the stardom of, of of Paul Hogan, I don't know.
2: That's a good point. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah. he, uh, I, I, does he I work I, on I, an
3: oil I, rig or something after being a model? Because <laughs> he's got a very weathered look about him by the time uh, Crocodile Dundee comes I'm just,
1: around. i just have a look to see what we can believe from uh, Wikipedia. He, uh... what a kind phrase that is. Has a weathered look about him. <laughs> yeah, <I> mean... <laughs>
3: <laughs> I didn't think was, about other potential phrases there, the, but that's.
1: Yeah. He was a <laughs> rigger on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, apparently. Well, oh, there wow. you go, close enough. Wow! Um, and became um, a new faces uh, the the talent show. Oh, we had a version over here as well um, in 1971, apparently, and that led to yeah TV campaigns, a little the the modelling, print and billboard ads, um, and then some acting. So yeah, and then yeah. and then crocodile Dundee um 35 years ago i think was is the yeah. the remarkable thing it's about, it's it's, it's absolutely about,
0: it's... i i i had never seen this movie before until this week when i watched it for for this podcast my my introduction to australians and australian culture was not paul hogan but steve irwin who hopefully i'll talk about later mm. um and so watching this now, it felt tremendously 1980s. <laughs> it really did. And while I, I kind of loved all of... Because it's, about, it's very much Game of Two Halves with the Australian stuff and then the, the American stuff. And I love all the Australian stuff, but the fish-out-of-water America stuff is not good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, hasn't, it hasn't necessarily aged well. I, no. I, no. 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 Um, I, I, I guess a lot of movies of the same time uh suffer the same unfortunate fate
2: uh, that do you know what that's a good point actually neil because i'm thinking about the three films that yahoo serious did you know something like young einstein which obviously was uh, a sizeable hit in australia and around the world and now you watch it and you go yeah it's kind of kooky it's kind of slightly weird which obviously he was and i, I imagine still is because obviously he's now a near recluse um yeah i think there was a certain few years just after crocodile dundee where we were inundated with australian movies that now feel very old and very dated and of their time that's i think that's the thing with crocodile dundee and uh, young einstein is that it feels of its time and if you can appreciate that that's fine but as you said tom because you only saw it recently you're like what is this this is this is not working for me at all but for me Crocodile Dundee worked perfectly because I had it on VHS and I would watch it near religiously because it was something different I think that's part of the reason why I don't want to go back because I'll have the same experience you had which is oh dear oh how did I not see this
1: oh
3: dear I think there's a point to be made there about that though uh, I had a very similar experience with Crocodile Dundee as, as a child like watching it quite often of it's say borderline religiously on a VHS and there is a time period there of, you know, once that came out on VHS in this country, where there was also, it was around the same time, the fascination with things like Neighbours and Home and Away and this permeation of uh, the culture in this country by this fascination with Australian culture suddenly became quite a big deal. And I think that probably accounts for some of the fondness, I think, in this part of the world for Crocodile Dundee historically. And as you as you say, I also do not want to watch it again. I have not done in preparation for this because I'm terrified it's going to be awful.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, if it can provide any comfort, I don't think it is awful. <laughs> okay. Well, that that's, that's good. good. That's good. I, you know, I think it is. You know, it is very, as its t- of its time. It has moments that you know you would not see repeated in films now. But um, but no, I, I do think it, it it very much does its job. And what you know, from the from a, a film that was very commercially successful and sort of put Australian cinema on the map to, I suppose it's worth going back in time a little bit to what. I think for many people is another defining Australian film, which is um, a *Picnic at Hanging Rock*. I don't know who would like to to lead the way on that one. I'm
2: happy to talk about that film. Um, Please do a, mi- a, a mystifying piece of work, as it I love it. I think it's an incredible piece of work, and obviously, you know, when when films. Come out now that are kind of similar to it. It, it gets referenced all the time. And I think there's yes, a lot there was of people. The, there
0: was the Carol Morley one, The Falling, a few years ago. Thank
2: you. Yes. Thank you. I'm trying to think of them off the top of my head. I'm thinking, <laughs> I see the press releases and everybody mentions it. But I think there are very few people who have actually seen it nowadays who are of a younger generation, shall I be kind? And so- I'll, I'll say that I'm older. Let's say that. Um, <laughs> I think it's a brilliant piece of work because ultimately it is some school girls sat around a rock but it's more than that it's it's a coming of age tale it is a mystery it's a drama it's a thriller um there's so much going on before the disappearance that i felt like i could just watch the interactions between the girls because of you know it was almost like it was Maybe like this is going to sound weird, but I guess to a certain degree, it's almost like it was an early clueless or something like that, where they're not taking the piss out of each other, but they're sort of having a go at each other in that jovial manner that school kids always do. And then it changes instantly and it changes the whole feeling around the movie. I would love to have seen it upon release just to see what the atmosphere would have been like in the cinema because i think that would have changed instantly much like a lot of horror films that we see nowadays it, it's kind of jovial it's fun and then all of a sudden it changes in a moment and you go oh this is weird i mean to me picnic and the hanging rock um is i think it was a pioneering film and i still think it's a pioneering film but unfortunately one that really only ever gets spoken about in in hushed tones to a certain degree now i think that's a
1: very good point. It's, yeah, I think I, mean, I, I first saw it, I didn't see it at the cinema, I saw it um, fairly early on on television. It was also my first introduction to Peter Weir, of course, um, who, again, a great Australian success story. Um, and I, I kind of wish he would make more films because the, the sheer variety of the stuff that he did is, when you look at that CV, is absolutely remarkable. Incredibly varied um, films that he, he's made and, 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 and been behind, it and just an alarming, <laughs> alarming dis- gap between each one it seems now. Um, but it is—I mean—it's is so poetic and lyrical, and it has been referenced so many times, it's been imitated so many times. And as you say, it, to, it's a shame that more people haven't seen it.
3: Uh, just uh, to add if 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 anyone listening to this hasn't seen it at uh, time of recording it is currently available in the UK for free on the uh, Channel 4's streaming service so oh wow uh, worth having a look
2: yeah
0: yes it is the the slight drawback that you have to sit through adverts which is, in a, in a film this atmospheric <laughs> that is true <laughs> <laughs> <strange look. laughs> Yes, yeah. Because what, what because I'm a total to snob, it's a I,
1: warehouse. Yeah, it's not quite. The, yes, yeah, not quite Because the... I'm a
0: total snob, I took one look at it being on all four. I saw the little little things on the video where the adverts were going to be, and I was like, no, I'm going to rent it off Amazon. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Probably a wise call, to be honest.
2: But it is. I think it's right in what dealers were saying in that you you can't break this film up. It's like, it's it's too delicate. It's too mysterious as well. And you know, if they hit the the advert button at completely the wrong point. It really does pull you out of it. I think that's the beauty of this film is that it slowly pulls you in. It slowly draws you in more into what's happened. Where have they gone? I don't, I don't really understand it. And then by the end, you're kind of hit with the, a huge sucker punch of stuff that, I mean, it left me thinking, I, I need to see it again just to understand more of it. And really, it's kind of, I, I think I was watching it thinking it's quite a simple movie. Somebody, you know, disappearance, that's about it But it's not, it's so layered, it's brilliant
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more I think the word you used was delicate And I think that's such a good word to use It's sort of like, it's like when you go to a grandparents Or like a a, a sort of older friend of the family And they've got like a collection of sort of porcelain dolls (laughs) That are beautiful but you're not quite sure what they're for (laughs) or why they're there yeah. Or, or why they're so creepy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a great yeah. analogy. To it's be just, fair, yeah, it's got that feel. It's so delicately crafted. It is like if you, it feels like if you sort of pull one scene gently out of it, the whole thing will collapse. Mm. It's it's so well put together and so creepy, and it, like, as you said, it just draws you in. And by the end, when it's sort of, because it's strange, because it absolutely never explains itself but it does for the last 10 minutes kind of throw revelations at you in such a way that watching it now, you sort of expect it to then explain itself. Yeah. Because it's done so much of the groundwork to explain itself, but the fact it doesn't is is so bold and, and as you said, makes you want to revisit it and watch it again and kind of fall under
2: that spell all over again. I mean, let's be honest, you know, that was made in 1975. The 70s for Australian films, certainly the ones that I've seen and we'll, we'll probably talk about, there was that, there seemed to be a lot of dramas like this, like, you know, the shackles were off. We're going to make stuff. You know, I'm thinking about Wake in Fright or Walkabout, you know, these films that ha- you watch now and you're like, how did this even get made? This is a frightening piece of work, but I'm pleased it did because it's now, you know, these types of films are now lauded as actually you should see this this was a cult classic it's still really scary to this day i'm thinking about waking fright really i mean it's a terrifying movie but then also you know walkabout is on there as well um it, it just seemed like certainly in the 70s and i'm i'm looking at some of the other films that australia made at the time but at that time it looked like they were making very dark dramas or thrillers that maybe weren't hitting the mainstream so much but have actually aged so much better than when they were released
1: mm-hmm. That's, that's a very good point, actually. That's, I mean, there are films that have passed into that kind of lexicon of cinema and cinematography. But as though they, so they are referenced so much. They are copied so much. They're hinted at. They're sort of talked about in reviews. They're talked about in these kind of revered, hushed tones. And quite justifiably, they were so unusual. So when you look at the kind of stuff I mean, that was coming out of the UK around the same time, we were probably still into the eras of the carry-ons. Yeah. just about, and, and some really terrible 1970s sitcoms. And to, to be confronted with these visual poems is, is quite remarkable. Um, but I guess then, it, as, as we said before we sort of came on, we're talking, there are these kind of strange, quite distinct eras of, of Australian cinema. Um, and it, it almost feels like a kind of a collective consciousness and that people are making films in a certain genre or in a certain style. And it's just the evolution is, is quite bizarre to see. There
0: was a, there was a braveness I think to those Australian films in the seventies. There was one we talked about um, on this podcast actually quite a while ago because it got a UK um, Blu-ray release called uh, "The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith," um, which is an amazing film about uh, an exploited uh, Aboriginal character who ends up uh, ends up killing a white person and then has to go into hiding and on the run. And it's so bold and brave and confrontational. Um, and yet, absolutely, as you said, Neil, when you compare it to some of the stuff that was coming out of this country at the time, you kind of have to sort of um, yeah, rub your eyes and say, if, if, if they were doing this,
2: what, why were we doing <laughs> Sid James? <laughs> but then you've got to remember at the end of the 70s as well, Mad Max. Absolutely. Which, it, which, you know, let's be honest, it, it was probably building to that. You know, we're talking about these films here and it was probably building to Mad Max anyway, which is another film that to this day is still referenced everywhere. And, you know, oh, the absolutely. sequels, um, the sequels are still incredible films. Um, but it does feel like maybe it was building to that point. Maybe that's what it was always going to. And Mad Max was that breakout hit. It could have been something else. It could have been In Frighter. It could have been Walkabout. It could have been Picnic at Hanging, Pot, uh, Hanging rock but actually mad max was the one that broke through immediately and I think it's easy
3: I... to forget how dark and gritty that film is as well like mad See, max is incredibly incredibly dark from quite an early point in the film and... i agree you know, yeah. the, the sequels are probably a little bit more, a bit, little bit lighter. There's a bit more Hollywood in there in terms of the influence, of, while still being very much Australian films. But that first film is, is, is dark and dirty in places. It's, it's, you know, it's gritty, uh, and it, despite the futuristic setting and, you know, the kind of this, this unusual kind of idea. It, it, is, it is very much a dark film.
0: Yeah, everyone talks about Mad Max 2 as being the one that kind of crystallised it and made everything work. But I much prefer that first one yeah
3: likewise yeah
0: yeah i think because of the grit and the dirt and the 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 just sort of kind of palpable rawness of it i think is what works
2: and also the fact that let's be honest the central character doesn't say that much so it it, it adds more to i know some people will go well thankfully you know he's not saying that much um (laughs) i was i was literally just opening my mouth to say yeah (laughs) yeah but i think in in terms of being in the film i think that adds to the mystery of who the character is it it adds that almost terminator like thing to him really you know that terminator aesthetic to somebody where you're like i don't know who this guy is but blimey i'm gonna root for him a heck of a lot um i I mean i agree i think the first one is i like all of them to be honest. i I, well i love four i mean it's fantastic but i think the fact that we had Mad Max, the first one that opened a door, that was then changed. You know, I think Neil's right. Is that it's interesting to see the decades how they changed. You know, we spoke about the eighties, Crocodile Dundee, and Young Einstein, and things like that. That came about just after Mad Max. It was a huge
1: change
2: when you think about
1: it. Mm-hmm. No, and and I guess you can't, also, you can't also refer to Mad Max and, and change without acknowledging George Miller made Babe. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so in, in terms Absolutely. of Peter Winn had a varied TV, but I, I stand corrected. Yeah.
2: Some people are in it yeah. for the money. Did
0: George Miller make the Happy Feet films as well? Yes, I think yes, he, did. he did. Yeah, I believe so.
1: <laughs> what a guy. What wow. a guy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, I know I've made this dystopian, <laughs> yeah, legendary series of movies, but what I really want to do is tap dancing <laughs> penguins. That's yeah, probably needed a rest. I'm more interested of, uh... in pig, pigs and penguins.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Change is as good as rest, you know. You move away from, from doing dark, dystopian uh, future where, there's, where everyone's fighting over petrol, and yeah. you do animated well, guess, penguins,
1: you know, why not? I guess another, I guess another interesting thing with, with Mad Max, with the, the fact that the, sort of, the landscapes are almost a character, similar to Picnic at Hanging Rock. Mm. So perhaps that is that, that sense of isolation and, and Australia being so far away, the, the terrain, the, the, the mix of sort of landscapes there. Um, is it even into things like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? It becomes the, the, the countryside, the scenery is, is virtually a character in the film. I'm thinking of some of the, the more recent horror films as well. There is that sense of isolation that you believe these things are possible just because of the remoteness, just because of the distance between places.
0: Yeah, Oh, certainly. You think of Wolf Creek, the, the sort of killer in Wolf Creek almost feels like born of the landscape.
2: Mm.
0: You know, he's he, he's as much an avatar for the kind of unknowable danger of the wilderness as he is a serial
2: killing sort of psychopath. I mean, to be expected that films would revolve around, as Neil said, the wilderness... Um, You know, I think Australia were always going to do that and have always done that, but it's interesting how it's used in so many different ways. You know, you talk about Wolf Creek there, and there have been so many subsequent movies that have done that as well. Neil mentioned Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, completely different there. I mean, wonderful movie as well, still holds up to this day. In fact, probably a prescient film. Considering it's talking about, yeah, talking about transgender rights and uh, male and female rights, and it's so much fun as well. But then you also a, a film that I absolutely love. And not many people have seen it either, but it's another film that really plays on that wilderness and being out in the barren landscape. It's a film called Cry in the Dark with Meryl Streep. And it's all based on a true story about a mother whose child uh, was killed in a dingo attack in the Australian outback. She has to prove her innocence that it wasn't actually her. It's a really interesting piece. It's got Sam Neill in it as well. Um, fantastic piece of work. And it was quite a popular movie as well, but it seems to have disappeared into the ether, really, which is a shame because, you know, it's a fantastic piece of work with a brilliant performance from Meryl Streep. But I think maybe because it's based on the true story that it is, it's it's quite gruesome. And I think because it was labeled as a drama more than a horror or anything else like that, I think it might now put people off because of obviously, you know, Kids going missing as well, which you know still echoes to this day. I think this is an interesting film, but you have to steel yourself to watch it because it is a tough watch.
1: That's true. Actually, I, that's something I had completely. It's a movie I'd completely forgotten about. I, I remember I, I actually went to the cinema, I'm I, to see it. I'm I'm that old, that <laughs> <it> was, <laughs> I, I was going to the cinema in nineteen eighty eight, um, and and the whole I Dingo ate my baby thing. I mean, it's referenced in. I've been re-watching Seinfeld. It was referenced in an early episode of Seinfeld. It was such a big thing. It was such a big part of um, life. It was the, the case kind of swept across the the world, This the speculation. Um, did she kill the baby? Was it taken by a dingo? It was such a huge thing. And, and to have completely forgotten it is, and yeah, I, I can't remember the last time it's popped up on, television Mm.
0: i do love like little bits of specificity like that like the idea of the the sort of the the whole concept of like a dingo taking a baby and i love this about australian films that they so often often quite self-aware in a quite self-aware way lean into these very specific sort of Australianisms. um but we'll talk about two hands in a minute two hands is absolutely littered with this stuff but I've been watching a lot of Aussie films to prepare for this. And I think this is, in fact, I'm sure this is the only day in my life where I've seen two films that use the phrase flat out like a lizard drinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's just its these, these uniquely little Australian bits. And I think particularly when you think of a film like, like Two Hands, um, Two Hands is full of that. Two Hands feels like this sort of strange, self-aware Aussie thing where it, it knows that it's ridiculous, that everyone has a name that ends in O. <laughs> like, it knows it's doing those things, and it just leans into them. And that's there's a sort of like, even though the, the, the plot of Two Hands, you know, but people for people who might not have seen it, it's an early Heath Ledger and, and Rose Byrne movie, um, and it's a sort of crime comedy type thing. And some of it's quite serious and quite gruesome. But even with all of that happening... There is this sort of laid-back, casual, hanging by the
3: beach feel to it,
0: and I think that's why it works so well.
3: (laughs) I'd I'd agree with that, and I think that the laid-back element is what actually means that when those elements happen, those moments happen that are really gruesome. This, particularly, there's a moment where a small child gets hit by a car, for example, halfway through the film. That is it's so shocking because the vibe of the rest of the film is so like kind of laid back and almost borderline, I say comedic and, and these moments come out of nowhere and they have such a, such a visceral impact because it's, it's so against the grain with the rest of that sort of tonal feel of the film, which is, it works surprisingly well, but it it really does. You know, it's a real heart and mouth moment when that happens because you're, you're not really expecting it at all. It's, it's, it's really jarring, but in a, in a really effective way.
2: It's a film that's really difficult to get your head round as well yes yeah because definitely. of because it's going through so many different genres that's I and mean, in not just going you know oh look it's a drama it's a thriller is a you can you can see the lines in it that's the thing and you as you've just said you know that Tom, it's it's funny and then all of a sudden something happens you go i don't know how to deal with this To <laughs> it's it's strange and yet at the same time it works because of the flip it's it's yeah. a really difficult film to get your head around, but it is a really interesting film. I mean, I'm not as in love with it as obviously you are, Tom, but I have to say I'm pleased I saw it because it is a curious film. It really is. Well, I sort
0: of, I sort of have this feeling like I don't know if it's actually good. <laughs> I don't... I can't, even, I can't even comprehend whether it's actually a good movie. I was sort of because it goes it just goes completely wild for about the last 30 to 40 minutes and i was sat there sort of shaking my head and <laughs> laughing when i wasn't sure i was supposed to be laughing <laughs> like there's there's a bank robbery scene which <laughs> like it's it's so serious and so violent but also really funny and <laughs> I'm not sure to what extent it's supposed to be funny. It's weird to what extent it knows it's hilarious
3: because funny the music playing during that bank robbery scene feels very, very serious, but what's happening on screen feels very, very comedic. It's very odd.
1: Yep, yeah. it's, it is. It's, it's kind of three, three or four films kind of entwined, almost. I think, I think, yeah, two of them, two of them are very, very good. One of, one of them's all right, and one's just completely fucking baffling. And it's just kind of, yeah. They're all intertwined and got to love the fact, Yeah. Little, little Brian Brown action in there because it's obviously either he or Sam Neil have to appear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, yeah, it's, it's, I I, I rewatched it at kind of Stewart's insistence and realized, I think I saw it at the London film festival like 20, 23, 24 years ago. And there were little bits of it that had actually stuck in my mind. I couldn't tell you what the film was, but the bank robbery in particular, the, the incident at the bank robbery, had, was lurking in there. No, I have, I have seen this. There were lots of little familiar moments or things that couldn't quite place. And most of them seem to have come from two hands. So I don't, it sticks with you, uh, for, for does, better or worse. I,
0: I can't wait to watch it again. I Honestly, I don't think I have had... Uh, uh, cause you know, there, if you sit watching a comedy film, you sort of you're you're ready to laugh, and you know the moments where you're sort of preparing to laugh, and you're expecting. I don't think I've had a better catch you utterly by surprise laugh than that bank robbery in, <laughs> in two hands. I almost left my seat. It was that. <laughs> I was just because I had no notion that anything of that degree was going to happen. Oh, I yeah, I I, I really wish actually, I. Um, I had followed through on Stuart's recommendation to watch this. So I could have talked about it with him
3: because yeah. it would have been
0: a hell of a conversation. <laughs> Agreed.
1: It is. There is this somehow, even like the sort of the really surreal moments or the, the, the little twists that kind of happened to the kind of every scene, it almost feels believable. You kind of buy into it. It just keeps you intrigued enough. I think um, Heath Ledger thing is an extremely likable lead in this instance. the the fact brian brown is the the big evil but even he's kind of charming because it's brian brown there are just so many little unsettling things but it's yeah the whole mood is odd it's yeah so yeah please yeah please step on this rug we're about (laughs) to pull it out from under you yet again
2: it's one do you know it's one of those films that i mean we've been talking about films now for you know a few minutes of Australian films, and most of us have agreed uh, that the ones we've been talking about have been very good. But this is the one that's really stood out for all of us, and not in a way that we've all gone, It's absolutely brilliant, you've got to see it, it's five stars, etc. We've all been saying the same thing, which is you've got to see it because it is quite madcap and you yeah. won't expect it. And for that, as Neil just said, it stays in your mind, even though it's not an amazing film, and that is quite a feat in any day and age, and for the fact that it was made... What is it? Is it an 80s film, I'm trying to think?
3: 1998. Um, Oh, no, sorry. uh, Mid-90s, isn't it? Sorry.
2: Right. Even whenever it was made, you know, you're still talking 20, 30 years or something like that, it still stays with you, whether you watched it recently or whether, as Neil just said, he watched it, you know, a couple of decades ago. Yeah, I'm
1: not sure whether... Yeah, whatever the year was, it was... um... 99. So, yeah, I think I got my I got my years Nine, wrong. Yeah, it.
0: 99. It so. came out the same year as Ten Things I Hate About You. What's wow. That wow. time i speaking wow. ledger. Wow. It, like the, the contrast of like that, which is such a you know polished kind of brilliant rom com, <laughs> and then this, which is I think your experience of it, Neil, is absolutely the right experience. Like something mm. you half remember from a film festival <laughs> 20 years ago, like a fever dream. Like it, it's got that vibe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it,
1: it really does. But I think there's. I guess there's, I'm saying the, the the sense of you know, the picnic hanging around some a lot of Australian films. There is this kind of odd haunting quality. Maybe it's just a sort of yet another echo of of all of that. I mean, the looking through Australian films again. I mean, I was reminded of, of, of Ray Lawrence and uh, Lantana and Ginderbine, no. which are two. I, I had to go back and watch Lantana again. It's just. The mo- again really unsettling really strangely paced really strange narrative you're not really sure anything's going and then you re- realize again and however many years it is since i first saw that there were little elements of it that had absolutely stuck with me the i uh, lines from Strictly Ballroom pop into my mind every now and again. <laughs> the um it's there is uh, maybe there is something oddly haunting and, and curious about a lot of Australian cinema, I think. They just maybe they just capture a particular a particular mood, a particular feel. I don't know. But I uh, think
2: Probably. I think this is more to do with distribution than anything else, is the fact that some of these films we're seeing and we're talking about, we're we're lucky because we get them. But some of the films that we haven't seen, because I imagine they think they won't play well here, are films about Aboriginal communities. You know, I, I don't recall more than two or three that I've ever seen in my life. But it's not to say that there wouldn't be a market for it, but I could understand why nobody would want to release it. But it must be a a huge market in Australia. You know, this is a shame where we don't have somebody who's Australian on here to tell us more about it, because it does feel like a blind spot to me, which is ridiculous, considering that is a huge part of Australia's history and continues to be to this day, is that these Aboriginal dramas or thrillers or horrors or comedies or whatever it is are not crossing over they're just staying in that country which seems weird in this day and age considering you know netflix are everywhere and you can just license it to netflix um i I just feel like there was probably three or four that maybe might have broken through but never more than that and i think maybe that's that's a disappointment from me is that i didn't see more about it
0: yeah, I can remember there was um, there was Jennifer Kent's film, The Nightingale, a year or so ago. Mm. But you know, in terms of recent stuff that kind of touches on 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 Aboriginal culture, that's like as far as I can go. And like I mentioned, Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith earlier. Um, but I think when you talk about films like that, that's an example of exactly what you're saying: that there may be the one or two,
3: yeah, that do cross overseas. Yeah, you've also got yeah. Rabbit Proof Fence as well, which was obviously a fairly mm-hmm. a substantial film.
2: Mm. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, what what are we talking? I mean, that's
3: two thousand and two. So, it still goes back quite a way.
2: Yeah. You see, and that even then, that was to a certain degree quite lucky to break through. It just sort of hit the zeitgeist at the right time, um, and it's a shame that more didn't follow suit. I think because that was the perfect time, really, when you had something like that. Because that's a wonderful film. It really is. Um, It's a shame we didn't get more after that. And instead, what we probably got and probably this bores out of um, films based on, you know, the, the history of the aboriginals is a new dawn of horror movies or aggressive movies out of Australia, which really did break through. You know, I'm thinking about I mean, we talked about this when we were initially putting together the seeds of doing this podcast is we all talked about animal kingdom, which was a huge breakthrough and continues to be a huge breakthrough. Really? Like, I mean, made into a TV show as well, but I think we're all in agreement that that's a tough film.
0: I think. Yes, absolutely. I sort of compare, compare what's happening in Australia now to sort of in the noughties where we had the, like the new French extremity thing with martyrs and switchblade romance and films like that. I I've, I've sort of feel like this is a sort of new Australian extremity with things like Wolf Creek and um, uh, Snowtown, certainly. A, a lot of the work of Justin Curzell, really. Um, yeah. True history of the Kelly gang as well from from just last year. And um, I was fortunate enough to see Curzell's new film, um, Nitram, at LFF this year, which is about the Port Arthur mass shooting. Um, and it feels like that's what we're getting out of Australia at the moment. A lot of, or at least... Those are the films from Australia that we're getting. Um, are these really dark, bleak, violent, gnarly films? A lot of which have this basis in in real life and true crime,
2: and that are challenging us as viewers. You know, you mentioned Snowtown there. Let's be honest, that challenges you. It's a yes, hard. Yes, I watched it
0: again today. It's the first yeah. time I've watched it since whatever it was, two thousand and eleven ish when it came out. Um, and my goodness, that film
3: is.
1: Know, once a, once a, a decade a, seems to be
3: about
1: acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> the acceptable rate, I think.
3: I've got a quick story about Snowtown, uh, just a little anecdote I, w- I would like to share just because uh, it's, it's, uh, it, well, it's an idea a reminder of, of, of how difficult that film to what is to watch and how full on it is. And how inappropriate it can be for a PR to put together a certain idea with this <laughs> is uh, a long time ago. I went to a screening of that. There was a tweet-along screening. <laughs> Oh my, it doesn't feel like the right format for that film About <laughs> halfway through we stopped because i went no this is this is this is a little bit too full on for it, it just feels a bit flippant for uh, for a film that's yeah, dealing with such a heavy subject tweet? what were they hoping for i don't know <laughs> wow well,
2: they, they clearly had never seen that
3: film no no i don't yeah. think they had
2: <laughs> even even the very concept of putting a
0: hashtag before the word snowtown feels wrong <laughs>
3: Wow. I thought I should share that with you.
2: <laughs> That's a brilliant story, but what a grave mistake that is. <laughs> I mean, blimey. Wow. <laughs> That's
0: absolutely outstanding. That film is is just wonderful. Like, Daniel Henschel's central performance as this kind of, like, smiling, charming psychopath is just so, I think, alarming is the word. And the thing I love about it, watching it again today was the way that, because you're seeing it through um, through um Jamie, the young lad's perspective, you'll never, like, let into the, the quote-unquote plan. Like, you sort of see the killings in in bursts and from the sides of rooms from where Jamie's looking on, and you don't see any of the explanation for it. Like, you get some of his ideology at the start, where he's linking paedophilia and homosexuality and he's being a loathsome person. But the killings don't really appear to be linked to that ideology, certainly after about the halfway point. So I think it's fascinating the way that Kurzel um, tells you this story of these horrible things that really happened, but positions you sort of just at kind of a 45-degree angle from them. So they almost become more unexplainable and even more horrifying.
2: You're almost like you're a fly on the wall to it, whereas, you know, normal films, you're right in front of it. But as you said, you know, that the way that you're off to the side, you're not seeing everything. You're never quite sure what is actually happening. Uh And certainly when I saw it for the first time, I was like that. I was like, I don't know what's going off. It's it's making me feel uncomfortable without even seeing the violence. And that's a tough way of making a film Uh is to make a viewer feel uncomfortable without seeing violence. Um, And I think only really good filmmakers can do that um and snowtown is that you know it's it is a stunning piece of work it really is mm-hmm. um but you know you were saying there about films that uh kind of scare I, I guess films that would scare us so i'm going to ask uh everybody on here about two films that i think probably were big australian movies over there Certainly they were big here as in they had a name. I remember being at school while one of them was released and the VHS tape was being passed around because it was so, it was one of the most violent things we'd ever seen at that time. So the two films I'm going to talk about is Chopper and Romper Stomper. Now, how do people feel about those
1: films? I guess Chopper is the one that I, I seen without really knowing much about it. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that was eric banner yeah in it was I, I i had to go back and watch chopper again when banner became better known because the the transformation there is just astonishing the it's I almost mean, a huge kind of comic book feel to the movie there is this kind of really almost kind of sort of slapstick feel to a lot of what happens in in chopper it is kind of feels a little more tongue-in-cheek and then you discover he's real (laughs) oh he existed oh this this shit happened Um, and it kind of it sort of unsettles you I think in reverse more so than the just watching it as a oh it's it's a violent criminal doing violent things
0: it's fascinating I haven't seen Chopper but I vividly remember the DVD of Chopper, because it was in my house growing up. And I remember having this sort of uh, really kind of dark red cover art and that big 18 certificate on it. And it it had that feel of a sort of forbidden artefact in the corner of the house. So maybe because of that, maybe I've given it a reputation (laughs) that has meant I've never, never gone to look at it.
3: I, I likewise the... have not seen it, but I do have a very visceral memory of seeing the D V D case in, in HMV when I was much, much younger. And there's this image of Eric Banner on the front of there with, with the like with a gun in each hand is, like it's burned into my brain. Like it's and again it was passed around by quite a lot of my friends and I don't think I've quite had the uh the I don't think my anxiety was allowing me to watch it at that point because I think I was just a little bit too scared of the, <laughs> this image on the front of it because it was just such a such an impactful and aggressive look that, yeah, I've never quite got around to seeing it. Rumpus Stump, however, I have seen, and that film is brutal.
2: See, you talking about not being able to see it because you... you know, it looked like it was going to be a real troublesome film. That's the same reaction I had with Romper Stomper. Because you look at the poster Romper Stomper, and it's it's, hard, it's half of Russell Crowe on the poster, Skinhead, but you can't really see it. And there's loads of words and whatever else. It's it's only when you watch that film do you realise, bloody hell. Yep. Oh, <laughs> really? No. No, no. I'm not going to... No, I'm not watching it. And it was only when I went back to it. I mean, this is what I was saying. The, the video was passed around through us at school, and I think it took brave school kids to watch it all the way through i mean we all said we watched it all the way through i'll be honest i never watched it all the way through i think i got to about the second brutal scene turned it off then i went back years later and watched it and appreciated it for what it was i mean it's a tough film to watch anyway but it did feel like having watched american history x romper stomper feels like a precursor to it
3: yeah absolutely yeah. I, that's a great parallel
2: it's just a tough film And a brilliant performance from Russell Crowe, you know, I mean, it's his breakout performance, and deservedly so. Um, You know, he's done method acting many times since, Um, and I think this was the start of it, really, is where you thought, especially when you watched it, and you didn't know know Russell Crowe, that's the thing. You watched it, and you just thought, is this guy real? Like, is this a documentary? I don't know. I'm not sure. Scary,
0: I think. I just envy your school days. The only DVDs that got passed around my school were like, as violent were like the Saw films And they are boring so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah but this was VHS days Tom that's the problem you see you had to rewind Them and then you know that <laughs> you couldn't Just slip a, a DVD into Your bag you had the whole you know uh, Case of the VHS Then the tape inside as well you could hear it rattling Around I mean you just couldn't go anywhere people who were,
0: you had to what you had to watch the gore in reverse through the rewind first exactly exactly that's the thing
2: anybody who had this problem with vhs tapes and sneaking them into school knows the problem knows the problem <laughs> uh, but you know to get back on track i think australian cinema changed when all of a sudden they were throwing out these crime dramas and you know romper stopped in 1992 or 3 something like that i think you, as we said, uh, Chopper, Animal Kingdom, Snowtown, there is this whole through line through the decades of really tough, violent crime movies that, once again, have stood the test of time. And we're still talking about them, and people are still referencing them. So they must be doing something right in terms of making these films. It's just the fact that we can only watch them, what, once a decade, if that.
0: <laughs> well, the one that's <laughs> actually quite... The one that's really fascinating is... Um, is Lake Mungo, because that has kind of had a renaissance in the last year and a half because of lockdown, because it's on every list of horror films on streaming you might not have seen that you can watch to get you through lockdown. Um, Lake Mungo is on all of those lists. And so it's been fascinating that kind of in the last probably 18 months, it might be the most high-profile Australian <laughs> film.
2: It's a really good point. And let's not forget that when that film came out, because I remember that film coming out, and it had got really good positive reviews out of a lot of film festivals, out of Australia and the US. And I think it played here a couple of times or whatever else. But you couldn't get it. No UK distributor had bought that film at all. So I remember importing the DVD from Australia. That's how I first saw it. Um, and then I think... Two or three years later, some distributor bought it, threw it out on DVD without any press or anything else like that. I remember seeing it at HMV. I'm like, my goodness, somebody has Lake Mungo here. This is amazing. It was like seven quid. I'm like, how can you just throw that film out? That film was such a, a an impressive piece of work, a frightening piece of work as well. That's the thing. And even... Because much like you, Tom, where you we were saying, you know, it's it's just come back around. I watched it again earlier this year for the first time in years. And I still, to this day, remember the final shot. Everybody knows what I'm talking about with the phone. Yes. Anybody who's seen it, that's, yep. you know, I still remember it to this day. It's never going to leave me at all. And that's... I think part of it. I think part of it has it has such a prescience now because the
0: sort of true crime documentary that it's homaging is now so huge because of Netflix. Yeah. That it feels all the more relevant now than it did, you know, when it came out, what a decade ago. So I think that's part of the kind of renewed interest in it. Along with the fact that, as you said, it used to be quite hard to get. Now it's like, it's on Shudder. Um, so anyone can watch it. Um, but yeah, I think it, and it kind of has that that feel of of a discovery about it. Now, people are going, "Well, this is the the horror film you didn't see because you were too busy in whatever it was, 2010, watching Saw movies." Yeah, um, here's <laughs> a really compelling, really terrifying psychological piece of work that, for the most part, doesn't lean on traditional scares, but has one image, as you said, that is completely burns itself into your brain.
2: It really was like the new Blair Witch Project. You know, as much as people hate the Blair Witch or whatever else, I'm not talking about it being found footage to a certain degree, because obviously it's a documentary with some found footage, but I'm talking about the way that um, the reaction to it built. All of a sudden you started to hear about it and you start to hear about it and it's happened again this year because as you said it's about again and it's been fascinating to watch people rediscovering it or finding it for the first time and going, wow why did we never know about this film and the answer is because it was hard to get at first and then people moved on and the director has disappeared but i mean that's not a joke either is it like the director has made no films he hasn't been interviewed at all nobody knows where he is This is his only film, and yet it is one of the best Australian films. I'm not even going to say horror films. One of the best Australian films in the past, what, 10, 15 years, easily, and yet he's not around. Nobody knows, and it's a shame because I would love to know more about it. Love it's, to know so much more about it.
3: It's quite an interesting backstory as well. The fact that he was the late Mongo was made because he couldn't raise money for another film that he wanted to make, and it was it was supposed to be a, a cheaper alternative to try and get his name out there. And obviously, then has done nothing since and has completely gone off the grid. It's a it's bizarre.
2: It is bizarre. It's the it, it, he is the new Yahoo Serious to a certain degree. I'm not talking about the type of films he made, but the fact that. He's gone off the grid as well. Nobody knows where he is either. Um, It does feel like all of a sudden they go, yeah, that's it. I'm done and whatever else. And yet the film still lives on. And you have to wonder, are they aware that these films are living on, are finding new audiences and are actually influencing new filmmakers? It's so strange to think that they're not aware of it.
0: Absolutely. I think it's a really fascinating film. I'm going to go th- round us all in a minute and ask us to maybe name, I don't know, one film we haven't talked about yet. But I have one I want to bring up because I have to just before we finish, um, which is the 2002 movie, The Crocodile Hunter colon collision course. Amazing.
2: Um, <laughs> I,
0: I think there will be no doubt among uh, yourselves and among listeners that it's the greatest Australian film ever made. Um, I, <laughs> It Actually, I, it's quite formative for me Because it, it came out in 2002 Where I was, and I'll whisper this Eight years old
2: oh, um,
0: lost. <laughs> and, and I've often talked about it as Because I was, like Steve Irwin was and is Kind of my hero, I think he's astonishing And he was, he was an incredible man Um and so I went to see this film as a sort of birthday treat in 2002. That's amazing. And I often talk about it as being the film that taught me that movies could be bad. <laughs> because you know, what, you know when you're young and your favourite film is whatever the last film you saw was? Yes. This was the one where I went, oh, oh no. <laughs> 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 Films could really disappoint you. <laughs> but on the flip side of that, I watched it again today for the first time since 2002. And it's it's not without merit. Like what they did was quite smart in that they didn't really try and do a film starring Steve Irwin. They basically did an episode of the crocodile hunter where occasionally they'll cut away to widescreen aspect ratio where there's a film going on about the CIA trying to track down a beacon of some sort. And most of the time that does not interact with Steve Irwin at all. He's just going around picking up snakes by the tail Rescuing, I don't know, goannas and uh, and and lizards from the from the road, um, and then there's a, a bit at the end where the plots sort of interact, and Steve and Terry Irwin have to act, and they're not good at it. Um, this sounds incredible. As, you know, as as just a showcase for 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 the Irwins doing what they do, it really works. I don't know why they needed to do a movie around it because it's terrible, and whenever they're asked to act, they they deliver lines like you've never heard anyone deliver a line before. <laughs> Anything scripted. They, when they're improvising, they're fine because that's what they do on TV. But when they're given lines to say, it's oh, it's so dreadful. But yeah, I just wanted to mention it because it's so formative for me. I, I was such a huge Steve Irwin fan and the chance to go for my birthday treat to see him on the big screen, only to sit there as an eight-year-old and realise that movies were a
2: fallible art form. <laughs> it, was,
0: it was quite the most
2: open <laughs> has anybody else seen this i've not seen it but i was gonna
0: Gemma's... say now i ask if anyone else has seen it i
3: have not
1: nope because <laughs> i have I, I am gonna go and seek it out now i have
2: to i have
0: to <laughs> yeah, say like yeah
1: it was
2: <laughs> you know the review there, tom was actually i'm thinking this sounds bloody awful But I'm kind of in. I'm kind of curious to see it now. You know, much much like you, I was a huge Steve Irwin fan. Used to watch the TV show and everything. But I'd never seen the film. Maybe I'd moved on by then or something. I don't know. But I'm kind of curious as to what you can do as a film. I I can't even think. You know, you're you're describing it there, and I'm thinking, I don't even know how that would work. How would that work? It's so fascinating as well
0: because they literally hermetically seal the Steve Irwin bits away because the Steve Irwin bits are in like TV aspect ratio. And then it expands to widescreen cinema aspect ratio for the CIA bits for no discernible reason. It just makes the film look weird, especially now when you're watching on a TV. So you've just all the Steve Irwin stuff is just really weirdly like window boxed in a small screen in the middle. It's it's honestly it's a profoundly weird experience. Is this readily available to stream anywhere? Yes, it's, it's on uh, Amazon to rent. That'll and I think, if you, I think if you subscribe to one of the channels on Amazon Prime, um, I can't remember which one it is. It might be the MGM channel. If you subscribe to that, you get it as part of that subscription. Done. Um, but yes, it's readily available for a couple of quid on Amazon. So
3: <laughs> I'm sold.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm now, sure. now I've had my moment. Um, I will, <laughs> I will ask the rest of you if there's, a, if there's a film that we haven't spoken about yet that you would uh, really like to say a few words about. So, Tom, why don't you go
3: first? I I will um, because I would be it would be negligent not to mention one of the most successful Australian films of all time, which is Muriel's Wedding. Uh, yes. Not necessarily a popular choice. I appreciate it. It's, it's an acquired taste. I, I watched it for the first time in about twenty years, uh, just last night, and um, it was expecting it to be not great, but I thought you know probably for prep for this, it's probably worth having watched it. Um, pleasantly surprised. It's actually a really lovely film from start to finish, uh, and and something that uh, I, I'm glad I sought out. Um, yeah, something that uh, I remember it being a, a really really massive deal, especially in this country. Uh, when it was released, because, again, as I mentioned earlier, sort of uh, culturally in the throes of this kind of obsession with homing and away and, and neighbours and kind of you know, Australia being this kind of quite exotic uh, location, because obviously it's still at that point. We weren't necessarily uh, able to go there as easily in terms of the price of flights and all the rest of it. Obviously, it became much more accessible as time went on. And yeah, it, it, it's just this very interesting look at a very, very specific time period of sort of 1994, 1995. Uh, before the 90s kind of kicked into slightly cooler things, but it was still just beyond where the 80s were. It's a, it's a very specific time period that um, is very fond in my uh, in my memory, um, and it's a, it's a lovely little love letter to that time period and also ABBA. Yeah, uh, it's su- surprisingly surprisingly holds up quite well.
1: No, indeed, I think the I mean I think there is a possibly a, a reasonable case that um, the ABBA revival that led to Mamma Mia started with muriel's wedding yeah. i can mm. believe that i think it re- revived an interest i think for a lot of people
3: i imagine it sold a lot of that abba gold compilation <laughs>
0: yes well all all i'm gonna say is sounds good but it's no crocodile hunter colon
3: clinton <laughs> <laughs> we, we can't I'm, all I'm, have I'm crocodile hunters. you know let a... me know how it's going <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, mark why don't you uh, give us a a final spin
2: well i was going to mention the loved ones which was a horror film that came out about 10 years ago or something however i have just remembered off the top of my head a film that i watched as a kid on near repeat and i'll tell you why in a moment but the film is the delinquents and the reason i watched it on near repeat is because kylie minogue was in it <laughs> oh. oh, and she was she was a little bit sexy in it as well. I mean, she was sexy anyway. She still is sexy anyway, but you know, I was, was, was
0: going to say, surprise, Kylie Minogue was a little bit sexy.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, in this, she, she was sort of a little bit, a uh, little bit evil, a little bit bad as well, you know. Um, she's she's fallen in love and they run away together. It's forbidden love affair, etc. I think it was just the fact that Kylie was in it, but I, I have to say, I did see this again. It was on TV about 10 years ago. I don't think anybody's got the rights to it anymore. I did see it again and it did sort of live up to what I vaguely recall in that it was a little bit steamy. And at that time to have Kylie do something a little bit steamy, considering she was in Neighbours, um, I'm curious to know what the reaction would have been like in Australia. I mean, here in the UK, you were like she was in Neighbours and all you got to see was maybe a bit of side boob through her overalls when she was doing some mechanic work. In this, you were like, bloody hell, she's got tight trousers on. She's got tight. Oh, dear, I'm going to have to have a cold shower after this. You know, um, it's it is a bit of a maybe it's of its time. Maybe. But when I saw it, as I said, couple, uh, 10 years ago, something like that, I quite enjoyed it still.
3: <laughs> Was it better or worse than her performance in Street Fighter? <laughs> uh it's it's much better
2: it's much better it's a low i mean bar, this is
3: but... <laughs> I, I know
2: i know but this is the kind of the film that probably a lot of people thought kylie can really act you know and, and uh, you've got to remember at that time there was no movement from tv to film like it was a wholly separate area you were either a tv actor or you were a film actor um, and i think this was maybe kylie's stepping stone from her going from huge in australia and around the world as a tv soap star to actually she can do stuff <laughs> in a film and we could hire her and she's pretty good i mean obviously street fighter not with standard <laughs>
0: <laughs> lovely stuff sounds good but it's no crocodile <laughs> <laughs> what, what i'll do is i'll deliver it with slightly less gusto
1: each time <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, neil do you have a, a final recommendation i i do i mean one but that I was going to mention um with regard to Peter Weir, I mean one of my first experiences of kind of Aussie movies that really stuck my mind was Gallipoli. Um quite again, another um, Mel Gibson performance um that I think you're still allowed to like. The incredibly moving through threw me into a bit of um sort of British history, a bit of shameful British history that I didn't know, but obviously every Australian does. Um Again, I've, I've watched it several times since. That's so absolutely held up. And one just to echo um, what we were saying earlier about kind of really strange haunting crime movies um, is The Boys. Though, if anyone's come across that with David Wenham, who I just noticed is in. Uh, a Steve Irwin movie from 2002. <laughs> um, ah, <laughs> strangely, it's all connected. Link it. So that might, maybe, maybe this will hold up against uh, Crocodile Hunter Collision Course.
0: <laughs> well, I was uh, going to say, with with Gallipoli, what you did was picked a film so
1: serious I couldn't do the bit. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, um, the Boys, again, another one of these films that has absolutely stuck with me, um, seems to have disappeared a little from sort of general knowledge. It's a film that's kind of told in reverse. It's a, a criminal who's released from prison. is um, plotting something, and you know something has happened because there'll be a flash of uh, him burning his clothes because of what he's about to do. And this sense of impending doom just builds and builds and builds. And I think, again, that seems to be a theme in several of the films we've discussed. Um, so that where the boys would be the one... I think is really really worth hunting down um, uh, it's a 1998 uh, trying to remember let me I'm gonna have to look at the director's name um, obviously get yeah, now every time you search the boys you get um, <laughs> this another <laughs> another show uh, that was Rowan woods um, another director who appears to have just effectively kind of disappeared from the, um, the cinema industry. Um, bit of a shame, but uh, yeah, that would be the one. I don't know if it's available anywhere, whether you actually be able to track it down because of the net, uh, the, the Amazon show of the same, of the same name. However, as I say, it does have David Wenham in it. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, all I can say is it sounds good, but, um, (laughs)
3: <laughs>
1: in, the, in the scale of david renner movies it does it possibly not us
0: yeah the, uh, the, the goal with any catchphrase is to eventually only have to say half of it <laughs> um, <laughs> so i think that brings to an end our sort of uh, sojourn through the world of uh, australian movies it's been lovely to uh, to reconnect with you guys and and to have a chat and uh Stuart, if you're listening somewhere i hope we did you proud talking about two hands um, we hope to return for more of these sort of discussions. We'll pick a topic and we'll uh, go into grotesque detail about Steve Irwin while pretending to talk about it. Um, it's been lovely to chat to you guys. Um, why don't you let all of the listeners know where they can find you on various social media platforms? I am on Twitter at Tom J Beasley. How about you, Mark?
1: I'm on Twitter also, Mark underscore CB. And Neil, where can I find you? You can track me down on Twitter and Instagram at Dinehard. And Tom.
3: Uh, and I am at Tom Mimner. Uh, again, I'll, I'll, in the description I'll put the spelling because it's, it's a tricky one. Uh, but yeah, on Twitter <laughs> um, and on on Instagram at WrestleCube. Lovely
0: stuff. Well, all that remains for me to say is uh, thank you for listening and uh, we will see you at the movies.